What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Hope everyone had a great week. We got a lot to talk about today, so I just want to get right into it. We're going to be reviewing the NBA in-season tournament. We'll talk about the Washington Wizards leaving downtown D.C., the NFL headed to Brazil, and last but not least, we'll finish with some numbers around Shohei Otani signing with the Los Angeles Dodgers. But let's kick things off with the NBA in-season tournament. I don't think I need to give you guys a big explanation around what this tournament is. We've talked about it before. But the general idea is that the NBA has a dead period during the regular season. Most fans don't really care about November regular season games. So they wanted to go out and make these games more meaningful. The idea was to create something like a European soccer tournament, like the FA Cup or maybe even the Champions League. Although it's a little bit different because not only are the stakes a little bit lower, but the teams are all in the NBA. They're not bringing in outside competition. It's essentially like a mini playoffs during the regular season. So they had their first tournament this year. The way they were incentivizing players was with cash payments. Every player on the winning team got $500,000, including the coach, and players on the losing team got $200,000. And those payments got less and less and less depending on where you finished in the tournament. Now, the first year, a lot of people have asked me how it went. What did I think? Was it good? Was it a flop? What did I think? And the reality is that you can't really give an answer on that because there's just so much nuance with the first year of this tournament. For example, the finals were great. I mean, the viewership was 4.5 million people. That was a 46% increase over the comparable window in 2022. So essentially what they're looking at is the regular season game that took place on that day in 2022. What was the increase over that? It was 46% increase. That's exactly what the NBA wanted to do with this tournament. Now, obviously it helped the Lakers were in the tournament. You had LeBron James, who took it very seriously by all matter of fact. I mean, he was popping champagne in the locker room. They're raising a banner at Crypto.com Arena, which formerly was Staples Center. And it was great. I mean, Adam Silver must have been pumped about that. But outside of the finals, the numbers weren't nearly as good. I mean, if you look at just the playoffs themselves, so outside of group play, but we're talking about quarterfinals and semifinals, those games average anywhere between 750,000 viewers on the low end to 2 million viewers on the high end. Now, the 2 million viewers were pretty good. I mean, that was a 16% increase for one of it year over year and a 98% increase for the other year over year. Those games also had the Lakers, the Suns, the Bucks, and the Knicks, four bigger market teams with superstars. Obviously, those games are going to be viewed, well, regardless of when they take place. But outside of those games, the numbers weren't nearly as good. I mean, you had the Celtics and the Pacers when they played, they had 1 million viewers. That was the least watched game on TNT all season this year. And then not to be upstaged, the Kings and the Pelicans had 750,000 viewers, which set a new record beating that previous game for the least watched game on TNT this season. So look, the numbers themselves weren't super impressive. The NBA says the group's play stage averaged 1.5 million viewers per game, which was a 26% increase year over year. I've looked at some of the back-end numbers on this, and of course, there's some funny business going on. If you look at some of the games, I mean, the Lakers and the Suns, they had 98% increase in viewership. The comparable game wasn't Lakers and Suns, so it's not really fair to compare those two games year over year. But you get the point. The numbers were a little bit mixed. The finals were great. And like I said, the big thing was that the, the Lakers were in the finals. If you would have had the Pelicans and the Pacers, it would have been an entirely different story. I don't think they would have even gotten close to four and a half million viewers. And we would be talking about this tournament much different than we are today. So let's talk about the future. I mean, the attendance was good for the final. People seemed to enjoy being there. It was in Las Vegas. It's cool. But more importantly, why is the NBA doing this? I told you, they want to make the regular season more meaningful. But it's not just to parade around and say, oh, we have better ratings. No, they want to do what the NFL has done. The NFL has done an incredible job of this. If you look at the NFL's ratings and what Roger Goodell has done, he gets a lot of shit for the players, the way he deals with punishments, the way he interacts with fans and everything else like that. But the one reason why he has not 
been fired and he has not been removed as commissioner is because not only does he take bullets for the owners, but he makes them a hell of a lot of money. If you look at what the NFL did with their media rights package over the last couple of years, they recently sold a 10-year deal for $110 billion with a variety of different broadcasters, right? We're talking about Fox, CBS, they got Amazon, they have ESPN, a bunch of others too. And the thing that they did really well is they created packages, right? They've done this over several years, but they've expanded on it over the last couple. And what I mean by packages, they obviously have Thursday night football. They have three different windows on Sunday, right? So they have the one o'clock games, the 425 games, and then they have Sunday night football, which they sell to NBC. They also have Monday night football on ESPN. But then outside of those marquee windows, they have uh, Thanksgiving Day games, right? They had a Black Friday game. They're going to do a Christmas Eve game. They're selling a playoff game exclusively to Peacock this year. So they've created all of these different packages that they can slice and dice and sell to a bunch of different broadcasters. Now, it's good for the consumer, too, because uh, ultimately, obviously, the product is improving, but you don't have to go sign up for a million different subscription services. Peacock is really the first one outside of Amazon where they're pushing the boundaries and seeing how far they can get. It's okay. I don't think it's really a problem. If you look at like NASCAR, which we talked about the other day, they've sold to four to five different platforms. Every game is on a different platform. You have to subscribe to multiple streaming services. It's much more difficult to find where to watch it, but also you're going to get subscription fatigue. The NFL really hasn't done that. And I think what the NBA is trying to do is something similar, right? So they have their rights package with TNT. They sell games to ESPN, obviously. But now what they want to do is they want to create this additional unit of inventory that they can go out and sell to a new broadcast partner as part of their new media rights organization. So we know right now they're going out and they're negotiating a deal. They're trying to get two to three times their current media rights package with a variety of different partners. This tournament, I think, is going to be an add-on on top of that, right? So they're going to be able to go say, hey, we had four and a half million viewers for the finals game. We're not only going to give you the finals, but we're going to give you all the group play. We're going to give you the quarterfinals and the semifinals. It's going to be this one individual unit of inventory that you can exclusively own, and you're going to pay us a couple billion dollars for it. And I think that's ultimately what they're going to be able to do. Adam Silver is a very smart commissioner. In my opinion, he's the best commissioner in all of sports. Not only what he's done on a punishment standpoint with different owners and players and his ability to uh, thread the needle between what the consumer wants and what the players and their owners want has been really good. But also on the business side, I mean, this guy has been tremendous. Valuations have increased tremendously over the last several years, and he's been a big part of that. So outside of what the NBA wants to do, let's talk about how they can improve this tournament. As someone who likes basketball and watches a number of these games, I have a couple ideas. Number one, let's get rid of those courts. I mean, those things are absolutely horrendous. There is no data proving that they added any value to the viewing experience or attracted any additional viewers. You can talk about people were, you know, mentioning on social media and the impression they got from that. But ultimately, I think that was kind of a downside. I saw a lot of people complaining, saying, I can't watch this. I can't see this. This is really distracting. It's really annoying. And I agree with them. I just really didn't enjoy them. And there's a bunch of other ways to do what the NBA was attempting to do, right? If you look at this from a first principle standpoint, the NBA really wanted to distinguish these games as different than regular season games, right? So when you turn on the game, you know, this is an in-season tournament game. This is not regular season. This is more important, right? They wanted that feeling. And there's other ways to do that, right? If you look at the NBA finals, they used to have that huge logo on the court. People love that. I love that. Bring that back, right? Put a different in-season tournament logo on the court. Do different things with the court, but you don't have to change the colors. That's just completely unnecessary. You could also make custom uniforms for the in-season tournament. That would be a different way to distinguish it. Give everyone in the crowd a shirt, right? So the whole crowd is a different color and it gives that playoff atmosphere. That's another way to distinguish it. There's a number of different things that they can do outside of the court themselves. Now, also, I think they should mix up the schedule a little bit. One of the most confusing parts for me, but other people too, was the idea that the in-season tournament was mixed in with other regular season games. 
you should just have a break during the regular season and take three weeks off and everyone go play these games, right? You can add a couple different group play games. You can make sure that everyone, when they get to the tournament, when they get to the knockout stages, they're going to play two to three additional games, but you can increase the cash prizes and make it worth it for them so they're not playing a heavy load of games additional on top of the 82-game schedule. That is something that's very easy in my mind, and it would be another way to distinguish the in-season tournament from the other games on the calendar. Super easy, and I think the NBA will eventually do something like that. But again, I cannot understate this tournament. I think it's a very smart idea from Adam Silver. I think everyone needs to give it a chance. This is year one. The NBA was always going to lose money on year one. I mean, they invested tens of millions of dollars on this tournament. I don't know the exact number, but there's no way you do this thing in Las Vegas. You put all this marketing into it. You run commercials, custom commercials throughout Las Vegas and other places. They spent tens of millions of dollars on this tournament. They don't even have a broadcast partner for it right now. I mean, it was literally thrown in with the other packages, but they're going to make their money back. This is not a one time and done show. They're going to be back. They're going to make improvements. And I think it's going to get better over time. And as a sports fan, this should be good, right? Like let's continue to innovate and push the batteries and figure out ways to make the sports leagues better. But that's it for the in-season tournament. Let's move on to the next topic, which is NBA arenas. The Washington Wizards announced this week that they're going to be moving their arena from downtown Washington into Virginia. Now, to be clear, it's really not that far. It's about six miles away, 15 to 20 minute drive, obviously, depending on traffic in D.C. But it's across the river and it's in Virginia and it's not no longer downtown in Washington, D.C. Now, this is a pretty big deal. I tweeted about it. And sometimes when I tweet renderings, it's usually just like, hey, cool, check out these renderings. People are innovating on the stadium experience. See what you think. But people were pissed. I mean, Washington fans were furious that this was happening. Not only did they complain that it's going to be significantly harder to get to from a traffic standpoint, from a parking standpoint and everything else, but they're just pissed that they're leaving the city. I mean, this is the trend that we've seen over the last few years of stadiums leaving downtown and moving to the suburbs. And we'll get into why that's important. But one of the reasons why I think they're so pissed is because the Wizards suck. They're just not a good team. The fans have continued to support them. And the arena is one of the last few arenas in the NBA today that is truly ingrained in the city. I mean, this is in a city block. You can literally get off the metro right there. You go in, there's a bunch of restaurants and bars and other things around this. And they've been a big part of the city over the last 20 plus years. And one of the things that I would say about this is there are a couple different schools of thought. One school of thought is that the Wizards had to leave. Crime in the area is up 40% year over year. They're also not getting the funding from the mayor that they wanted to renovate the arena, so they had no choice. And some of that's certainly true. Like, I'm not going to argue with the statistics that crime is up 40% year over year. But I've talked to a number of people who live in that area who go to the games, and they say it's really not as big of a problem as people say. Now, I would counter that with you need to be able to feel safe when you go to a sporting event. No one wants to be able to go to a sporting event where you don't feel safe. That's just number one rule that needs to be cleaned up. And if the team was talking to the city about that long term, and it didn't get cleaned up, that's obviously a problem. But number two, this is not about crime. This is not about crime. This is about the future of sports franchises and how the valuations are changing over the last few years and into the future. If you look at sports franchises specifically, NBA, they used to be valued strictly on financials. How much revenue are you bringing in every single year and how much profit are you making? Those are derived from different sources, right? National TV money, local TV money, merchandise, sponsorships, concessions, tickets, everything. I'll add all that up. How much money are you bringing in and what are you making from a profit standpoint? We'll give you a three times revenue multiple and that's what your franchise is worth. That's literally how they used to be valued. But that has changed and it's changed drastically. Over the last number of years, these teams are now being valued like tech startups. The revenue multiples have absolutely gone insane. Sportico just released their last valuation. Some of these teams are worth $8 billion now and they're being valued at 11 times revenue. 
So the, mal- the multiple valuation has gone from three times revenue to 11 times revenue. That's a massive increase over the last decade. And it speaks to what the ownership groups have tried to do with these franchises. And Washington is just a latest example of this. Let's look at what's happened in Milwaukee. They built this new arena. They built the Deer District. That's enhanced the value of that franchise. San Francisco, Stephen Curry. They built this new arena. They have all the real estate around it. It's become incredibly lucrative for the franchise. Atlanta, I think, is probably the best example of this, although it's outside of the NBA. The Braves, they moved from Atlanta to Cobb County, and they built this huge park in and around their, their ballpark, and it's become incredibly lucrative for the team. They're making hundreds of millions of dollars a year just off the surrounding area, the bars, the restaurants, the office space, the residential buildings, and everything else. So what we've seen now is these sports teams are turning from just traditional sports teams that are there to entertain fans into real estate companies, really, right? If you look at the Wizards specifically, what they're going to be doing is they're going to be building this 70-acre blueprint area where they're going to have an arena, they're going to have a practice facility, they're going to have shopping and retail, they're going to have potentially apartments, a performing arts center, and parking, and all these other things, right? They're not necessarily going to own all of these things, but they're getting $2 billion. It's a $2 billion project. $1.5 billion of that is coming via bonds. They're going to be paying about $500 million themselves, and it's a significant discount for the revenue that they're going to be able to derive from the project itself. I think this is what the future of sports franchises look like. We've seen it on a number of scale. All of the best-run teams, the most expensive teams, are doing this right now. The Cowboys were probably the OG of this, right, with the star and what Jerry Jones was able to do there. Again, the Warriors, even the Knicks of some regard, their real estate is smack dab in the middle of Manhattan. The Bucks, their valuation has increased dramatically over the several over the last several years because of what they've been able to do on the real estate front. The Braves, several other franchises too, are all taking advantage of the real estate and they're building these massive entertainment districts that you can just simply not really do inside of cities. So that's a big point and one of the reasons why I think Washington is leaving. Now, one of the things to keep in mind here is that this is not a done deal. People were pissed off, but I still think there's probably like a 50% chance this thing actually gets done in the capacity that it said. And the reason for that is because not only did the mayor of D.C. come back literally that night, I don't know how they found this much money that night, but she said, we have $500 million we're going to give you for renovations. They had previously been asking for 600, so the gap has closed significantly from what the city was willing to offer, which was essentially zero, and now it's $500 million overnight. So maybe that ends up pulling them back in a little bit. But the other thing I would say here is that this still has to get approved by the government within Virginia. And one of the things that hasn't been talked about by a lot of people, which I think is relevant here, is that Qatar Investment Authority invested for a 5% stake in Monumental Sports Group, which owns the Wizards, the Capitals, and a bunch of other sports assets throughout D.C. That could be seen as a conflict of interest in some regard. They are a passive investor by all accounts, but ultimately maybe that's one of those things where the regulatory bodies within D.C. and the government bodies within D.C. and Virginia say, hey, this is something that we don't necessarily want to deal with. Let's keep the team in D.C. We don't need to be giving them one and a half billion dollars worth of tax breaks to build this new arena over here when Qatar is essentially going to end up financially benefiting from this. We'll see what happens. The other thing that came out on the same day, which was a little bit less talked about, which I but I think is still relevant, is the Thunder. They got a nine hundred million dollar arena approved by the government. And it it was actually put to a vote, which I think is interesting because most of the time the government just approves it without putting it up for a vote. But this was put up for a vote and the citizens of Oklahoma City approved it. They voted to approve it. And the reason why this is so important is because the Thunder are contributing essentially nothing to this project. They're contributing 5% of the total funds that are used to build this new arena. And this is one of those things that I talk about all the time with the give and take of public funding for these arenas. Most people, the school of thought is, hey, why are we giving these billionaires tax breaks? Why are we paying for their arenas? They make plenty of money. The valuations have gone up significantly. They can go pay for these. 
And the idea, though, is that the supply and demand imbalance with professional sports teams, specifically with small market teams, is totally out of whack. Oklahoma City does not want to lose their NBA team. It's just a fact. They do not want to lose that team. It contributes a substantial amount of money to the economy every single year. The GDP of the city has increased dramatically since the team got there. And it's one of those things that the citizens are happy to pay. It's a one cent tax. They're happy to pay that to keep the team there long term. Another reason for this is that the owner, Clay Bennett, he's very involved in the city. He does a lot of different charitable organizations around there. He brings a lot of value to the city as well. And they have a good relationship, right? So this is one of those situations where the citizens are willing to pay for it. They don't mind fronting the bill. And the Thunder got lucky because 5% is significantly smaller than most of these arenas cost. We've seen this trend emerge now where most of these teams are actually lending towards more private funding than they are public funding. Golden State paid 100% of their new arena. Orlando did 10%, but Brooklyn did 50%. Sacramento did 41%. Detroit did 62%. Milwaukee did 52%. So 5% of the funding for an arena is relatively small. But again, it was put up for a vote. And it's one of those things that the citizens just do not want the team to leave because there are plenty of other cities from a demand perspective that would want this team. And with just 30 NBA franchises, the supply is simply not there for everyone to just be able to say, hey, go screw yourself, pay for this arena yourself. So Oklahoma ends up fronting the bill. All right, next thing I want to talk about is the NFL going to Brazil. This has been a long time coming, even though many people were shocked when it was announced. The NBA since 2007 has launched this international series where they've played games in London primarily, but obviously Mexico City. They played games in Frankfurt and other places in Germany too. And next season, they're going to be adding a game in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The game will take place at Corinthians Arena in Sao Paulo. This is primarily a soccer arena. They also held games for the FIFA World Cup in 2014, and it was used for the 2016 Summer Olympics as well. The reason why this is so important, though, is because Brazil, many people are shocked to hear that Brazil is actually the third largest football market, NFL market in the world, right? Obviously, the U.S. is number one and Mexico is number two, but Brazil is number three. And when I tweeted this out the other day and posted on Instagram, many people asked, they said, why have we been messing around in London and Germany if Brazil is the third largest market? And the reason for that is actually quite simple. It's all about the money, right? Even though the number of total fans for the NFL might be smaller in a place like London or Germany, they're able to make significantly more money in the long term because of the difference in earnings and GDP and everything else like that. So they are giving a game to Brazil, but I don't think that's going to be the last one. I think they're eventually going to expand potentially into France or Spain. I think Real Madrid's new stadium is absolutely incredible, and that's an area that they could play games as well. But more importantly, if we just want to zoom out for a second, look at the big picture and what this means, the NFL is changing, right? We've talked about this for several years now of how potentially a European division could be added, maybe a team, the Jacksonville Jaguars, their name continuously comes up as a team that might be willing to go over there. But I still don't think that's likely. I've talked about this several times now, and you guys know many of the reasons. Everything from a competitive standpoint, taxes, a lot of players just simply aren't going to want to go live over there and move their families over there, the travel, the logistics. There's potentially 50 reasons why a division wouldn't make sense to go there. Obviously, the money is important, and typically that wins out. But what I think the NFL is going to do differently is that they're just going to create a new broadcast window. If you look at Sunday, right, we talked about this during the NFL segment of this podcast. If you look at Sunday, there's three windows, the one o'clock window, the 425 window, and the night game, the Sunday night football. The NFL could very easily just add a nine or a 930 o'clock window, right? You can make every team travel one to two times a year internationally, whether that's London, whether it's Germany, whether it's Spain, whether it's France, whether it's Brazil, whether it's Mexico or somewhere else. You just hold this international schedule where every single team is required, required to play one to two games abroad every single year. 
and you extend the season by a week or two. You add an additional bye week in there so they get the extra rest and it doesn't hurt anyone from a competitive standpoint. And the NFL is still able to make a boatload of money because they're going to be hosting these games in different areas and you're able to sell that as a new media rights package, right? Hey, we have this new international media rights package. We're going to charge you a billion dollars a year. You're going to get one game a week. That makes sense, right? I mean, they just did it to Amazon and now you're able to go do it internationally. I think that's what the NFL will end up doing. That's not to say that they won't add teams internationally in the future, but I I certainly don't think it's going to be happening within the next five years. It's probably not going to happen within the next 10 to 15 years. And I'd even be surprised if it happens within the next 20 years. This is something that just doesn't really make sense for a sport that is predominantly based in North America today to expand internationally and hurt it from a competitive standpoint. In my mind, it's much better to just go play games internationally where you don't dilute the product and you're able to get people still interested in them. I mean, there were 2 million people that went in the ticket. There was a ticketing space online where you could go in and sign up for tickets to the Germany game. There were 2 million people in there within two minutes of it opening. The demand is there, but if you go and you add all these international teams, maybe that dilutes the product, right? Now it's kind of seen as this fun thing where you go once a year. If there's a game there every single week, who knows if that's as interesting, right? There's obviously a bunch of soccer games uh, internationally every single week and every single day. And more sports is not always a good thing. This is something that MLB has dealt with with 162 games. When you add more sports or more games, it dilutes the product over time. And I think the NFL is certainly concerned about that. And especially with the quality of play, you do not want to hurt the competitive advantages that certain teams have today. All right, last but not least, let's talk about Shohei Otani's contract. We talked about this the other day on the podcast, so I don't want to go into all the details around the present value and everything else like that. But the one thing I do want to say is I am shocked. I am absolutely shocked at how many people are still saying this is a $700 million contract. This is not a $700 million contract. It may say $700 million on paper. You may read $700 million, but this is not a $700 million contract. Here's what happened in my mind. Shohei Otani is an incredible player. He's an absolutely amazing player. He's a unicorn. He's going to make the Dodgers a lot of money with his uh, Japanese heritage and his ability to go to the LA market. Without a doubt, he is going to make them a lot of money. It's a smart decision for him. It's a smart decision for the team to sign him. But the reason why it's not a $700 million contract is because he was never going to get a $700 million contract. Everyone looks at Otani and they say he's a player unlike anyone we've ever seen. He's an amazing pitcher. He's an amazing hitter. Those two type of market players are worth $350 million each. You add them together, he takes up one roster spot, $700 million. That's not how this works. Number one, $700 million is an astronomical number to pay any athlete, irregardless of sport. If you look at major U.S. professional sports today, the previous record for total value of a contract was $450 million by Mahomes. $450 million. Not only is the NFL significantly bigger from a financial perspective, but $450 million to $700 million is quite a jump. And if you want to go to baseball specifically, the previous record was Mike Trout, $426 million. So going for $426 million on a 12-year deal to a 10-year deal, so two less years, and bumping that number to $700 million gets you to start asking questions. So that's what I did. And what ended up coming out was that the deferrals are absolutely massive. Now, deferrals are nothing new. We talked about this. Mookie Betts has deferrals. Freddie Freeman has deferrals. Max Scherzer has deferrals. Ken Griffey Jr. is still getting paid. Manny Ramirez is still getting paid. Chris Davis is still getting paid after retirement. But the reason why Shohei Otani's number is so mind-blowing and everyone's still talking about it is because the amount of deferrals is insane. A player might typically defer 5 to 10% of their salary just to get the biggest number possible. And they'll say, okay, I'll take a little bit of a hit on inflation or the net present value of that money, but the overall contract's going to be a little bit bigger and I'm going to get 95% of the money or 90% of the money up front, so it doesn't really matter. Shohei Otani is doing the opposite. He's giving up 97% of the money and he's getting 3% of the money up front. The reason for that is because in my mind, 
CAA and his agent just wanted to scream the biggest number possible. They wanted to be able to say, hey, we're getting $700 million. And the reason for that is because most people projected that he was going to get $500 million. And the eventual deal actually ended up coming below that. It ended up coming anywhere between $430 million and $460 million, depending on how you want to value it from a present value perspective. The MLB is valuing it at $460 million. The Players Association is valuing it $435 million. Now, the difference in the one that I would argue is more important is the MLB because from a luxury tax standpoint, they're charging the Dodgers $46 million a year. Now, the other thing I would say about this is that the Dodgers, the benefit that they're getting is not nearly as dramatic as every other reporter is making it out to CB. Everyone's saying, oh, the Dodgers got this amazing deal. They're going to be able to go out and sign all these free agents. And all they're really telling you is that they're saving money on the luxury tax because you see 700 over 10 years, you think $70 million a year and the luxury tax payment is $46 million a year. But the reality is that's just not what's happening. The value of this contract is $460 million due on the present value of future cash flows. $460 million, the $700 million number to me is essentially meaningless. So let's talk about $460 million. The Dodgers have to fund that money. They don't just get to wait 10 years and then pay him $46 million and say, oh, great, that was awesome. No, every year they have to place $44 million into an account. And that account then grows with interest. They're going to go buy T-bills or something else like that. And it's going to grow with interest and it's eventually going to be worth $68 million in 10 years. And they're going to use that $68 million combined with the $2 million that he got in salary during that year. And that's going to be his $70 million per year contract. But they're only putting $44 million into the contract. So again, that's how we get 460. But the reason why it's not as big of a deal for the Dodgers and they're not getting this massive advantage that other teams can't use themselves is because they still have to fund that. MLB doesn't want Shohei Otani to wake up in a decade the Dodgers go bust or not have the money and say, oh, sorry, you don't get your money. No, the Players Association specifically has a contractual language that protects them from this. And the way that they protect themselves from this is by making the Dodgers or any other team for that matter, place this money into an account. And when they place this money into an account, it has to be done within two years of when they earn that money. So next year, when Shohei Otani earns his $70 million contract, he's going to get $2 million up front. And then the Dodgers have two years, they have 24 months to place the remaining $44 million, which will eventually be worth $68 million into an escrow account. That money has to remain in that escrow account until Otani gets paid out. So it essentially buys the Dodgers two additional years. Is that a benefit? Sure, of course it's a benefit, but it's not nearly as big of a benefit as everyone else is making it out to be. Also, the other thing that I've heard a lot this week is that the Dodgers are going to make all of this money back before the season even starts. Shohei Otani broke the record on Fanatics for 24-hour jersey sales. He beat Lionel Messi. He beat Cristiano Ronaldo. He beat a bunch of other players too. That's true. That's certainly a fact. And it's good for the business of baseball. It's good for Otani and it's good for the Dodgers. But it's not good for them financially, per se. That money, when you sell jerseys online through Major League Baseball, through the NFL or any other organization like that, that money is split between all the teams, right? So the Baltimore Orioles are making money off those jersey sales too. The New York Yankees are making money off those jersey sales. The Arizona Diamondbacks are making money off those jersey sales. Every team in Major League Baseball is splitting that money evenly. So the Dodgers are not making nearly as much money as everyone is making them out to be on those jersey sales. Now, the main difference here would be that the Dodgers, they get to keep all of the revenue that they make in their stores, right? So they buy the jerseys online or they buy their jerseys from the manufacturer and they place those jerseys in their store. They typically charge a markup and anything that they make in excess of what they would typically pay for those jerseys, they get to keep. They don't have to pay the Yankees. They don't have to pay the Orioles. They don't have to pay the Diamondbacks. So they are going to see some benefit from the jersey sales but it's not nearly as drastic as everyone else is making it out to be. And the other part of this is that Otani does not get that money either. 
Through the Players Association, all Major League Baseball players split their share of the jersey sales. So at the end of the year, it typically accounts to somewhere between like fifty or sixty or $75,000 per player. Every player that had service time in Major League Baseball that year gets a cut check to them by the Players Association, and it's the exact same amount of money whether you sold one jersey or whether you sold a million jerseys. So again, Shohei Otani is beneficial to baseball financially. He's going to be extremely beneficial to the Dodgers. The ticket prices also are a little bit misleading because those are secondary ticket prices. The Dodgers haven't even released their primary market ticket sales yet. All of the tickets that you're seeing online are season ticket holders that are looking to get a little bit of their money back by selling the first game of the season. So those tickets will eventually come down with time. They play, you know, 80 plus home games a year. You'll be able to go to games for a decent amount of money. It may be a little bit of an increase compared to last year, but you and your family will be able to go to games. You're not going to be priced out. Shohei Otani is going to be a DH this year. You're going to be able to see him hit three to four times a game. People are not going to be paying $500, $1,000 per game, every single game for 80 plus games to go see him play. That's just not how it works. Again, all of this to say, Otani's great. I love him. I think he's an incredible player. It's a great signing for the Dodgers. It makes sense for them from a financial perspective. It makes sense for Otani from a financial perspective. But I think baseball fans in general are probably overreacting a little bit. These rules are allowed for every single Major League Baseball team. Guggenheim does have a little bit of an advantage because they're a financial services company and they can put that money in escrow. You know, they can essentially say, hey, we were going we to hedge ourselves on inflation anyways. Let's just go put that money in the account for Shohei Otani and that'll be our hedge. They can go do that, right? They have hundreds of billions of dollars in assets under management and that gives them an advantage. But this is a rule that's in the CBA. Every single team can apply it and it's not nearly as big of an advantage as all these players and these people are making it out to be. All right, guys, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope everyone learned something new and enjoyed it. Otherwise, have a great day and we'll talk later this week.